Good afternoon. It's good to be here again on this sunny Missouri day. My trail camera at home reports that we still have a lot of snow, and I think we even had some ice this morning. So this is beautiful weather. We greet you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And I count that a tremendous blessing this morning, this afternoon, and I trust that you do as well. In fact, he invites us to come. He says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so he's inviting us. He's promising to give us rest. And he's inviting us to come with our burdens, with our distresses, with our difficulties, the things of life that are difficult for us. And that is such a privilege that we have, that we can bring our burdens to him and receive the rest that he has promised. And I, my prayer is, is that we could do that today as we go through this this prayer and fasting time. Prayer and fasting. What is it? What really is it? What is fasting? What is prayer? How should we go about them? Are they for us today? And so I have a couple questions for you. How many of you have prayed this morning? Okay? Excellent. And don't stop. That's good. And I don't mean to break into the quietness of your prayer closet too far here, but I have another question in regard to fasting. How many of you have fasted in the last year and I'm going to exclude at Bible school last year, so I'm aiming a little more personally. But how many? God bless you for doing that. I am blessed to see that. It seems like sometimes it is something that we um, just shrink back from. And it would just be easier to go eat lunch right now, right? It would. Dave alluded to that. And so we look at it and we say, well, why fasting today? What are we trying to accomplish by fasting? And so the title of the message today is Prayer, But Why Fasting? So giving credit where credit is due, I have pulled my thoughts from largely two uh, books as well as the Bible, but this book, Prayer by O'Hallisby, and those of you in prayer class recognize that. And another one is Fasting a Neglected Discipline. I've also pulled thoughts from as I prepared for this message. 
And that last book there is written by David R. Smith. Prayer, but why fasting? We pray. We pray often. It was obvious that you all prayed this morning. We pray before our meals. We pray in the evening. And I trust we pray many times throughout the day as we face various situations that come our way. And that is good. And we need to continue praying. But what about fasting? Should we fast? Is it just the right thing to do? Is it just the right thing to do at Bible school? Because that's what our administration calls us to do? Of what value is it? What does fasting really mean? What is it to accomplish? Is it so that I can possibly twist God's arm to get him to do what I think he should do and answer my prayer according to the way I think he really should answer it? I think this afternoon as we think of the subject of prayer, but why fasting? I would like to take a look at prayer, first of all, because they're tied together, prayer and fasting, and look at what prayer really is and then move on to consider the question, why fasting? So beginning with prayer, what is prayer? If someone came up to you and asked you what prayer is, what would you tell them? You may give answers like, it's me talking with God. It's, it's us telling God about our needs. And those thoughts are right. That's, that's okay answers. Those are good answers. But as we try to answer the question, what is prayer, I would like to evaluate what really is happening in prayer. What is the attitude of prayer? And what are some elements that constitute true prayer. It can be difficult for us to actively engage and effectively engage in prayer and fasting if we do not really know what prayer is or what fasting is for. And consequently, we tend not to become real engaged because it seems like a lot of exercise with little results. And when that happens, our tendency is to just lay it down. We lay it down and don't pick it back up. So let me give you an example. If I had a project, I build houses at home, and I have a project, we have a meter panel uh, 50 feet away from the house, and I need a trench dug up to the house to lay the uh, incoming power in, in the trench, the wire, and I give you a shovel and give one of you boys instructions to dig the trench. It needs to be 18 inches deep. And so you get that shovel and you go for it. 
you got this length, you know what it is, all it is is sheer work to just pick it out and dig the trench. And you're digging, and I continue on with other things, and after a time I come back, and by all observation, you have been working hard. You're sweating, you're panting, you're breathing hard, and, and you've just, you've been at it. But I look at the trench, and there's just not much trench dug. What's wrong? So as I evaluate it further, I see that you got the shovel upside down. You got the handle down in the ground and, and the big part up here. You could get a hold of that good with your upper hand. But you know what? With a little instruction and a little encouragement, you can dig that trench and you can make progress and you can get somewhere. All of life has its laws. And where these laws are followed, there is progress. Prayer life also has laws. And if we break these laws, our prayer life will become burdensome and fruitless. If we abide by the laws that govern prayer, laws which God has set forth, our prayer life will be sound and bear fruit, which will be an incentive to more prayer. And I believe this is where we all want to be. So having that said, what is prayer? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And yes, prayer class students, I know we studied this just yesterday, but that's okay. We'll study it again. We have the verse. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. What's happening here? Is this the scene of prayer? What do you think? We have Jesus saying, Behold, be alert, pay attention. I'm standing at the door and knocking. Jesus is at our heart's door, waiting. And he says, if any man will hear my voice, we don't always hear him knocking because we may be busy in other things. Maybe busy in our self-interests. And so if we hear and open the door, that is our responsibility because it is our choice to open that door or not. If we hear and open the door, he will come in. It's not possibly, it's not maybe, 
it's not a, just a good chance that he will come in. He will come in as we open our heart's door to him. And what will he do? He will sup with us, and we can sup with him. We can communicate. And sup here has the, has the thought of intimate fellowship. We have that term happening in, as we think of communion. He will come in and sup with us and we with him if we open our heart's door. So often we have this concept that we need to um, get God's attention and that we are the ones that need to instigate prayer, initiate prayer. But I'm here to tell you that it is Christ who is knocking at our door, not we at his. He takes the initiative. We love him because he first loved us. May we not forget that as we think of prayer. Christ desires to enter our life, our heart and life. He desires to enter, and he will enter if he is given access. To pray is to let Jesus into our needs. To pray is to open our heart's door and allow Jesus to employ his power to alleviate our distress, whatever our difficulty is. To pray is to let Jesus glorify his name through our need. And consequently, the result of prayer is not based upon my intense will or my fervent emotion or my clear understanding of exactly what my need is or what I think the right answer is to my distress. Actually, to pray is to open our heart's door and allow him to do his work, to exercise his power in our hearts and our lives. He knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for you, and he knows what will bring him the most honor and glory. That was a challenging thought to me, and we haven't got there yet in prayer class. But so often we pray for things that would make my life comfortable. We pray, and, and honestly, that's rather selfish. The, the writer here describes that we should pray that God's will, whatever brings him the most honor and glory, that is what he would do for me. That is how he would answer my prayer. Moving on, 
some elements of prayer. I have two of them here. Two key elements of prayer. And these are attitudes of prayer. The first one is helplessness. And how does helplessness come into effect with prayer? In Wisconsin, I referenced we have snow there, and we've had a lot of snow this winter, a lot of snow. Um, in fact, right now on the ground, just out across the yard, there's probably 18 inches. And, um, and so that, that can be cause for some vehicle difficulty. Um, let's just say one of you young people are driving a car and you come to my driveway and the snow is not plowed yet and you enter the drive and you go a ways and soon you're not going. Your car got stuck, it's, the snow is tucked all up underneath, the car has spun out, it's not moving. Are you helpless? Yes, you are helpless to move further. What are you going to do now? Ask for help, right? If you were not helpless, would you ask for help? Probably not. You would get out and you would do whatever you need to and you'd keep going. Why would you, why would you call me to have, have me come help you help get your car out of the drive if you weren't helpless? We're thinking about prayer. We tend to, as humans, go on our own might. We tend to do our own thing by our own self until we reckon with the fact that really we are helpless on our own. And it is only then that we will ask and accept help. Because if I came to you and you were spinning around a little bit and I said, can I help you? And you'd say, no, I think I got it. You're not completely helpless yet. You're still working at it. You're getting somewhere on your own. And in the car, that's okay. We find letting you do that. But sometimes we tend to do that spiritually. And that is not good. Spiritually, on our own ability, we are helpless. And I need to come to the end of myself, the end of my ability, and the end of me trying to make it on my own. We need to remember that we are helpless sinners that are saved by the power of God, not our own ability. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only those who are helpless can truly pray. Prayer is for the helpless. And we need to remember that so that, so that 
when you come to the end of my drive and you see the drive is full, you don't just snore in there until you can't go. You park on the drive and say, you know what? I'm helpless. We need to understand that we are helpless without the power of God at all times. Another element, a key element of prayer is faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible for there to be prayer, no matter how helpless we might be. If we lack faith in God to answer our prayer, our our cry, our prayer, is a helpless cry of distress in the night. So we have the car stuck in the snow. And if you called me up, why would you call me if you were stuck in my drive? Why? Someone help me. What's that? I'm nearby. Okay, that's not quite what I was wanting, but... Okay, you think I could help you. Okay, excellent answer. You thought I could help, so you had faith that if you called me, I would come help you, right? Oh, is that faith? We see faith there in being willing to come with our need because we realize that help is available. James 1, verse 6 and 7 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, not doubting. We need to ask in faith. And we need to come in prayer in faith. And the simplest form of faith in prayer is simply to come knowing that God has the ability to help us. That is faith. In class, we talked about that yesterday. If you have a young brother that wants some candy out of the upper cupboard. If he's pretty sure he can get it himself, he'll slide a stool over there and he'll climb up and he'll climb and he'll get it. He won't ask. But if he tumbles down and hurts himself and determines that he can't get it, then he will probably ask. And we tend to be like that. John 6 verse 37 says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's go in faith, knowing that Christ has the answer. Let's open the door in faith. He will not cast us out. He will not cast us away. He has loved us long before we knew him. 
or heard about him or heard him knocking at our heart's door. Helplessness united with faith in God produces prayer. How important is prayer? John 15 verse 5 says, I am the vine, it's Christ speaking. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Do we have helplessness? Yes. Without me ye can do nothing. How important is prayer? How important is it to be connected to the vine? It is the difference between us having the power of God in our life or us being a dead branch. Without Christ, we can do nothing. And since we can do nothing without Him, we should pray often about everything that comes our way. It should be our attitude, our posture as Christians. And so how aptly Paul wrote in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he said, pray without ceasing. Have this continual attitude of prayer. May we be faithful in that. A quote yet from O'Hallisby in regard to prayer. I quote, Prayer is a labor for which there is no substitute in the kingdom of God. We all need to be reminded of this because it is easy for us to look upon it exactly the opposite way. We are inclined to think that when we are real busy in the work of the kingdom of God, then we can without danger spend less time in prayer. This way of thinking is in our very blood. And Satan sees to it that it is quickened into life at just the right time. It is therefore necessary for the Spirit of God to burn into our hearts this mystery, that the most important work we have to do is that which must be done on our knees, alone with God, away from the bustle of the world and the plaudits of other people. This work is the most important of all because it is prerequisite to all the rest of the work we have to do in the kingdom of God. Preaching, pastoral work, meetings, societies, administrative groups, organizations, and solicitation of funds. If the labor of prayer does not precede, as well as accompany, all of our work in the kingdom, it will become nothing but human work, more or less capably done, and with more or less effort and agitation, as the case may be, but resulting in nothing but weariness, both to ourselves and to others. The work of prayer is prerequisite to all other work in the kingdom of God for the simple reason that it is by prayer that we couple the powers of heaven to our helplessness, the powers which can turn water into wine and remove mountains in our own life and in the lives of others, the powers which can awaken those who sleep in sin and raise up the dead, the powers which can capture strongholds, and make the impossible possible. End of quote. That was challenging to me. 
But let's pray. And how fitting it is for us to pray as we gather at Bible school where we are doing in-depth study to pray and ask God to bless us and remembering our helplessness. Let's go on to fasting. Why fasting? Is it really necessary to fast? And so, first of all, we'll look in the Old Testament. Let's turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls. Now, it uses the term here, afflict your souls. But in our terminology, maybe we could say fast. Ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be done Sorry, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments." And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And so they had this this uh, day of observance, this day of atonement, and they observed this, they were to observe this every year. And, and in that, they were to afflict their souls. And so, as this day came around, they would do that. And, and this was on the day of atonement, when atonement, remembering the atonement that was made for the sin of the people, And it signified the humility of a soul before an almighty God. Don't forget that concept. Afflicting our souls, fasting in our terminology, was a sign of humility of a soul before God. And it took place on the day that atonement was made for their sin. We get the picture there. We also are sinners who need to humble ourselves before an almighty God. We could look at fasting in the New Testament. Jesus fasted for 40 days as he began his earthly ministry. Later on, when he was ready to choose his 12 disciples, he fasted all night. And it doesn't necessarily say that he, he abstained from food, but he abstained from sleep. He took a sleep fast, and he prayed all night.
And in Matthew 6, Jesus says, and we're going to turn there, Matthew 6, Jesus tells us, when ye fast. We don't exactly have a spot in the Bible, in the New Testament, that I am aware of that says, we, we shall fast, or we must fast. But Jesus says, when ye fast, indicating that there will be times when we do fast. Here in this passage, Matthew 6, verse 16, we will read that. Matthew 6, 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The Pharisees had taken this thing of fasting to a whole different level than it was intended. They fasted twice a week. They were no longer just fasting once a year at the Day of Atonement. They were, they were fasting twice a week. And that their fast had become ritualistic and legalistic. And Jesus was saying, don't, don't do that. Don't be hypocritical like that. Don't fast to be seen of men. Don't fast for the way it may appear to others. Fasting is not to be an outward show, but rather an outward action of abstinence for the sake of an inward communication with our Father in heaven. True fasting for the Christian must include both outward, so physical, and inward, spiritual, part of our man, and it must be exercised in spiritual activity. What is the purpose of fasting? We already asked the question, if the purpose of fasting is to twist God's arm, so to speak, so that he will give us what we need or what we think we need. And I will say, no, it's not. That way of thinking, I believe, is not for us as Christians. In fact, that way of thinking has its roots in heathenistic worship. Think about the idol worshipers that were worshiping Baal on Mount Carmel. What were they trying to do? They were doing all kinds of things to try to get the attention of their God. That is not our God. Our God is not that way. The purpose of fasting is abstinence for a period so as to loosen by some degree our ties to earthly and material things. It is self-denial so that we may concentrate more wholly upon 
spiritual, and eternal things. We do not see the food that we would have eaten today as being wrong or evil, but rather we are choosing to abstain from it through self-denial so that we may focus more wholly on the things of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the power of God to help us in our distresses. The principles of fasting go hand in hand with the principles of prayer. In fact, fasting is an extension of prayer. Prayer and fasting were not made for God, for God's sake, but rather for us. Another quote from Hallisby. We resort to fasting to set our distracted and worldly-minded souls free for a time from material things and thus give the Holy Spirit opportunity to search our whole inner being and speak to us about things that grieve him so as to reestablish unhindered communication with the Holy Spirit and a greater influx of divine power. Another quote from the book Fasting, A Neglected Discipline. All of our fasting must be on this basis. We should use it as a scriptural means whereby we are melted into a more complete realization of the purposes of the Lord in our life, church, community, and nation. If we are to have any object in view when we set out to abstain from food for religious reasons, the first one ought to be that we desire deeper communion with Christ. End of quote. We could liken fasting to, to something very physical. I don't know how many electricians we have here today, but in, in the electrical world, if we want to get power from this wall over to this wall, we need to size the electrical cable to the amount of power that we want over here. If we would go get a little household um, white cord that has a, a triple prongs, uh, triple plugs on the end, and string a number of those over through here, and try to run a heater or, worst-case scenario, a welder, we'd have trouble. It wouldn't work. There wouldn't be power there to do that. The greater the volume of power to be passed along, the larger and stronger the cable and the connection must be to the power source. And we could look at the scene where Jesus was telling the disciples, the disciples were not able to cast the devil out, and he said, this kind only cometh out by prayer and fasting. It seems the disciples lacked power, in effect. The more power that must be transmitted, the larger and better connected, the prayer cable of the soul must be connected to God. 
James 4, verse 8 through 10 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, maybe we could say fast, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And what will be the result? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He will grant us strength as we humble ourselves before our almighty God and come before him with prayer and fasting. He will lift us up. He will give us strength. He will give us power. In conclusion, let's remember the words of Jesus that we referenced earlier. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. May our time of prayer and fasting today be a time of us as branches connecting yet more firmly to the vine, firmly to the source of true Christian power. May God bless you.